This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 11, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. When he debated Paul Krugman about the euro crisis, economist Pedro Schwartz was blunt. He effectively said of economists like Krugman, they got us into this mess, and now we are expected to sacrifice our principles so they can get us out of this crisis. Suffice it to say, Professor Schwartz doesn't shy away from an argument. We spoke during yesterday's Cato conference, Europe's crisis and the welfare state, lessons for the United States. Did the fiscal crisis that effectively got started in Greece and then uh, was also popped up in other countries, did this have to become a crisis of the euro? Was that a, a necessary result, a, an inevitable result? The euro was badly designed. And some of us said it very early on. I have a, a collective book of 2004 where we said it wasn't going to work, and it didn't because the euro was designed as a very stable currency independent of politics and where the central bank couldn't lend to governments. And if a country didn't do what it should, uh, it wasn't bailed out. But that didn't work because countries just did the wrong thing. They didn't keep by the rules. And therefore, uh, once the crisis started, and it started because real estate uh, property uh, f- fell down in, in, the, in the US and so on. Once that started, countries were shown to be too rigid <clears throat> and couldn't adapt downwards to reduce their costs. And this is what happened in Greece and then in the other countries and now in Italy and Spain. How has Germany proceeded along this process in terms of uh, what you might prefer? Well, Germany has this original idea of the euro. Uh, almost similar to uh, to real estate, uh, to uh, almost similar to go- the gold standard, and they want the Germans because of their experience. First in 1921, just after the First World War, and then after the f- 45 war, they want a very solid currency, and they don't want any inflation. So they have this idea, and they gave up the the Deutschmark uh, for another currency, which ha- had to be the same kind of solid affair. But they, and so they insist that we, we, the countries that have made mistakes, should correct, even if it's painful, because we have to defend this solid currency. So they see that, and especially voters in Germany see that. Well, more than 60% want a solid currency and look askance at the countries that uh, have made all these mistakes and don't want to pay for them. And on the other hand, uh, many in Europe want to have a currency like the dollar with a Federal Reserve that is political, helps the government when it's need to, especially before an election, and, uh, and also prints as much money as is necessary to get people out of trouble, uh, come what may on the inflation front. So there are two views of the euro. The second one is winning, but the Germans are unhappy, though in my view they are right. Greece is perhaps the best example of this. A huge public sector that effectively directs the course of the government, which has for many years now been making the wrong choices, as you note. Uh, When you have people who are that dependent on uh, government largesse and a relatively shrinking private sector, uh, for democracies, how do you you get out of that? Absolutely. Democracy and a solid economy and a solid currency are sometimes at loggerheads. But you do have examples in Europe of countries who've bitten the bullet. And, uh, and they have said, all right, we made mistakes. There was too much credit for the uh, 
property sector for real estate. And now we are going to take a large cut in our growth. We are going to fall and we're going to, uh, to heal. And that was the three Baltic countries. All three of them have gone through very harsh, very harsh two years with falls in GDP of uh, more than 20% in some case. And the three of them kept by the euro because they either had the euro or joined it or where had a stable exchange rate, kept by the euro, retrenched, and now are growing again. This is something that uh, Greece and Spain and Italy and Portugal don't want. The people are accustomed to a welfare state and they simply don't want to take the medicine that the Baltic countries have. Now you talk about the Baltics digging in, retrenching and uh, climbing back out of crisis mode. You recently debated Paul Krugman. Uh, if I could ask you to engage in some sort of uh, ideological Turing test, uh, what, what does he typically respond to, to uh, those examples? Well, he thinks that growth comes from the demand sector. You have to keep up demand, be it private demand, families, um, companies, the, the government, so that the economy keeps on growing. And if you don't prop up demand uh, with um, public money when that is failing, then you will see the economy fall. I don't think growth comes from demand. It comes from savings and proper investment. And so using uh, public money to uh, increase demand and so to make the, current, the, uh, the economy grow in the short run is the wrong recipe. We tried it in Spain. We had a socialist government uh, under Mr. Zapatero, who, when the crisis started in 2007, he started spending money. Uh, the government started getting into debt and spending money in uh, municipal sports uh, venues and, uh, and uh, subsidy for expectant mothers. And even my, uh, my income tax was reduced because he gave me a check back. Um, I, well, I need a check, but perhaps not as badly as somebody who's poor. So um, that was tried. And getting the state in debt so as to restart the economy is a wrong recipe. And in Spain, we've seen it. And we've seen it in the other southern countries or the other border countries of the European Union. When I hear Keynesians make that explicit argument that we need a, a government consumption in order to prop up uh, demand, there's often never the follow-up discussion, even if you accept the idea as, as true uh, in, in all cases, even if you accept that idea, the discussion doesn't or rarely seems to follow, is it worth the cost? And it, it, they seem to avoid that altogether. They avoid it, and they avoid the problem of the, of the increase in debt. And this is very much the problem in America and the United States, where you have a growing public debt, and even the rating of uh, American bonds has gone down. And the question is, how much debt can a country bear before it goes over the cliff? And two economists, uh, Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff, have uh, set out of the study of, uh, he's, they say, eight centuries of crisis, but in fact, 20th century crisis, out of that, how much debt a country can bear before it starts nosediving. And if you are a developing economy, they said 60% on GDP. If you're an advanced economy, 90% on GDP. Then things are getting tough. So 
debt is not free. You have to repay it or you have to inflate to get free of it or you renege it. My guess is the difference between that 60% and 90% has a lot to do with what kind of interest rates you can command in the market. Indeed. Well, once once you get over the 60% and you're a growing economy and people are not sure that your institutions are the right ones and so on, they start asking for an insurance premium. That is the spread between the kind of the debt of that, those countries and the, debt, the German debt in, in, in Europe. So our insurance premium is now again above 7%. Uh, 7% is very hard to pay. Uh, and usually you don't have enough uh, tax income to pay back that debt. And so we in Spain uh, next year are going to have 93.6% of debt over GDP. And that is going to make our life very tough. The United States is effectively headed uh, in the same direction. And if you were to look at it from just a broad brush public choice analysis, it's very hard to see what changes, what occurs to avert uh, the crisis. Public choice is a microscope on Congress in the United States. And you have this uh, coming, just after the election, the coming cliff of whether uh, the uh, Congress will, will uh, vote for a higher ceiling of debt for a higher ceiling of debt, and, and whether or it won't. Now, there's two ways. Uh, one of them is don't increase the ceiling, don't raise the ceiling, starve the beast, as they say. And the other one is, yes, increase the ceiling. We have a plan to reduce debt over so many years. So the choices are very bad, and the choices could have been told in fr before, uh, beforehand. And, those, and the people who were warning, uh, there was no... There was, they, they weren't paid heed to. And so the, the states, America, is in a situation which, funnily enough, or curiously or sadly enough, is a bit like some of the countries in Europe. The United States, to the extent that the federal government is mainly engaged in transfer payments from one group to another, uh, is a growing welfare state. And you make a different argument about welfare states than the standard analysis, you argue that they're simply immoral. Fun fundamentally immoral in so many ways. Of course, you always say the welfare state is good for the poor. Uh, and when you start a welfare state, you help people who don't have anything. But then slowly, you have to finance it, and the finance falls on the middle class. And then it's the middle class who become grumpy, as they have in America. Um, it is immoral. Um, let's take the case of pensions. You're making the young, the young who are going into a job pay for the old, for a larger and larger number of old who have been stopped from saving. They are not, when they are retired, they don't live on their own savings. They live on the subsidies of the young. And that can be sustained up to a point because there comes a point when there comes a moment when the young say enough. Uh, why should we pay such taxes for people who haven't saved? And so the social tensions uh, increase when the welfare state has been invented to reduce social tensions, to make people happy to live with one another. And this is not what is happening in America or in Spain or in some parts of Europe. A lot of people argue, without respect to morality of welfare states, they argue, well, we can just uh, trim it back we can make sure that the welfare state only targets the very poor, the destitute, the people through, who through brute luck 
have found themselves in a situation where they desperately need help. You say that that is uh, insufficient. It is insufficient because uh, tweaking an immoral system is very bad for democracy. Let me give the example of Sweden. In Sweden, they had uh, free education, free uh, free education, uh, free health, uh, pensions were public, and, and so on. And they found they couldn't pay for them. They couldn't afford them. So they started having these, uh, uh, these checks uh, for education or for health, where the public health public help was given to people and not to hospitals or schools. And so that made the system be more efficient. There was less cost and people used their demand to go to the uh, school or hospital they preferred. But that doesn't help because it's still people being given money for the greatest, the, the most important decisions in their lives. They become, they become like children, uh, and the nanny state will give them money for things they should have decided themselves. Uh, I remember in Sweden when I was there with Timbra Foundation, I met a young girl who was uh, the head of the, uh, the, the, uh, the Conservative Party youth. And she was from Vietnam originally, and you could see that, a lovely girl. And she showed me her, um, her identity card. And she said, this number... Uh, this number tells anybody in Sweden that I was born outside Sweden, that I was born in Vietnam. So that is the control that slowly the state turns on to you, even if they have a welfare state that they can afford. It's the welfare state itself that makes, that makes you be, uh, be uh, less um, foreseeing, far-seeing, and uh, it's an immoral thing, it's an immoral situation because... People don't take the big decisions for themselves. And that has broader implications as well. I mean, the Austrian economists talk about malinvestment to the extent that you're handing money to a group of people for some specific area of their lives. They underinvest elsewhere or they overspend in the area where they're being given money. Well, look at Sweden. They give you this check for education, but they forbid you to add any money to it. What they say is this is the amount of corona we give you. On a check, you can spend it in any school you want, but you cannot increase it. You cannot put your own money so as to get a better education for your children. Can you imagine what sort of dirigism that means? And this is what, uh, what is happening with the welfare state. It's uh, corrupting democracy. People want to go on voting for something they think they get free. And in fact, they get a bad uh, bad service, and they also get high taxes, and even if it's more efficient, they get people telling them what to do. Pedro Schwartz is a professor of economics at Universidad Autonoma de Madrid and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You can watch the full conference at our website, cato.org.